Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Robert Wright, thinker and author of five books, including Three Scientists and Their Gods, Non-Zero, Moral Animal, Evolution of God, and uh, most recently, Why Buddhism is True. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And of course, uh, founder of Mindful Resistance uh, Newsletter and MeaningOfLife.tv and Blogging Heads. I should, should not say those things as well. I encourage saying those as often as possible. <laughs> so let's start with a quick background. So if, if, if through the Evolution of God book, you were trying to figure out whether uh, religion can be reconciled with science and whether uh, religions can recon- you know, be reconciled with each other, how would you pithily describe uh, the questions that your other books were, were trying, to, uh, trying to explore and figure out as well? Well, let's see. It's a good question. I mean, I guess... All my books, I mean, I remember when I was writing my first book, Three Scientists and Their Gods, in the 80s, somebody asked what I was writing a book about, and I said the meaning of life, kind of half-jokingly, but it was kind of about that, and in a way, I think they all kind of have been since then. You know, I'm interested in questions about how we should live, how we should structure society, Moral questions. And, and I think, you know, more than a lot of people these days, I'm interested in the question of ultimate purpose, whether there is some kind of larger purpose that we're part of. That has certainly, that question has certainly informed both non-zero and the evolution of God and, and was brought up in that first one, three scientists and their gods. So that's, you know, that's a big theme with me. I, I, I see a unity in my books that maybe is not evident to anyone else. So I may be imagining it, but no, no. Um, do you think it's a coincidence that it started from an evolutionary perspective, then from the Abrahamic religion perspective and, and then from Buddhism? Like, could, could you have gone the reverse <laughs> or how, how do you think about the sort of uh, that, that, you know, journey or sequencing? Well, I think the evolution of God, I mean, I, I would say the, the, purpose of the evolution of God was pretty different from the purpose of the most recent book, Why Buddhism is True. One thing the evolution of God was up to was looking at what circumstances bring out the best in religions and what circumstances bring out the worst. And the answer I came up with was kind of one that had been grounded in my previous book, Non-Zero, the basic answer was, and, and I tried to document the answer at almost tedious length throughout through the history of the Abrahamic religions, but the argument was that when religious groups see another group as being in a non-zero-sum relationship with it, in other words, there's a possibility of a win-win outcome, they're more likely, and, and they see signs that the other group wants to play ball, so to speak, so the win-win outcome is possible, you know, an economic uh, gains, or maybe they can they can benefit by uniting against some common enemy or something. But when they see the possibility of a win-win outcome, playing a, a non-zero-sum game to a positive-sum outcome, they're more likely to find in their scriptures reasons to be nice to the other group. That's what's going to make them focus on on the the brighter side of their scripture rather than the darker side. In all the Abrahamic religions. 
you have a brighter side and a darker side. Uh, they can find in their scripture reasons to be nice to you and reasons to be mean to you. But, but what I argued is that one of the main determinants of which they look for is what kind of relationship they see themselves being in with another group. Okay, so that was, that's an example of something that I was up to in the evolution of God that I really wasn't, didn't get into in the Buddhism book at all. Now, it's true that the evolution of God wound up addressing the question of higher purpose and arguing, as I had in Non-Zero, that there was some reason to believe there is a purpose that is unfolding, that we're part of, that has a moral direction. So in that sense, it was it was about the question of, you know, valid spirituality or what, what, what kinds of religious beliefs might make sense in a modern age. That's true of the evolution of God, you know, and it's, and it's true that, that why Buddhism is true is also interested in looking at what a viable spirituality is in the modern age. But the Buddhism book didn't get into the question of higher purpose. So they were, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't really see the missions of the, I, I see some overlap in the, in the, in themes in the book, in the two books, but I see their fundamental missions as being different. Although, as I said, I see them as being part of a larger whole in terms of the way they fit into my interests and, and my kind of quest for meaning or however dramatic you want to make it sound. That's a perfect answer. And, and I, I wanted to get into the purpose that, that among a few other topics are, are something that you've really, you know, been thinking about and writing about for decades. And, and you have a, you know, a couple interviews with uh, Steven Pinker and Daniel Dennett, among, among other folks, where you really get into the purpose and they, they have a difference of opinion from you. I'm curious if you can describe the crux of a difference of opinion that you think you have with Pinker and Dennett on this issue of purpose. And, and then I'm curious as to not so much why that matters, that difference of opinion, or more so is what are the implications? What should we do differently based on that difference of opinion, if anything? Well, where I don't differ with them is in my view of how biological evolution works. We, we are all three Darwinians. So when I talk about the possibility of biological evolution and then human cultural evolution, which of course has, uh, you know, if biological evolution carried us from single strand of DNA through, you know, by us, I mean all of life, through um, kind of the, 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 the one-celled level of organization to the, to the multi-celled creature level of organization to the societies of multi-celled creatures level. If, if biological evolution did that, then cultural evolution carried our species further from hunter-gatherer village to, you know, ancient city-state, globalized world on the verge of a global community, if we play our cards right, which at the moment we're not doing, but I'll leave that aside. I don't differ with, with Dennett or Steve Pinker on, how, on the mechanics of how that works, either the biological evolution or the cultural evolution. I think there's reason to think, though, that that you know, mechanistic process is subordinate to some larger purpose, um, which could mean a number of different things and they could either be cheering or not cheering, but uh, that's the main difference is they, they don't think it's impossible. I don't think. And I don't think they think it's crazy to say that we could talk about there being evidence or, or no evidence um, and argue about whether there is evidence of, of, of a larger purpose, but they don't agree with me that there's much evidence that there, there is one. I mean, the Dennett video, <laughs> I would encourage people to watch because the honest truth is 
I, I think he kind of was conceding, if you read, if you, that there was um, evidence. And then I wrote that, and then he, that he had kind of uh, conceded that, and then he got all upset and insisted I misunderstood him and so on. But it's a fascinating artifact. That video, if you Google uh, the one with me and Dan Dennett, it, it's a conversation that goes in a lot of places, including we talk about consciousness. But the purpose, the purpose argument, I, I think that video would give people a real sense for the spirit of my, my uh, argument. Are, are there implications for, for that argument that uh, will, would impact our behavior in some way? In one sense, no, because uh, in one sense, yes, I guess. I mean, this, by, by no, I mean, you know, if you, if you look at the argument in non-zero, it's an argument that, well, the first part barely is an argument since it's hard to deny. There has been a growth in complexity. Biological evolution, as I said, carried us all the way to to human so you know to the level of human societies. Cultural evolution carried us through mainly through the evolution of technology, all the way to the brink of a global community. More and more complex societies uh, encompassing more and more land. And, and I argued that through throughout that process, you know, zero sum and non zero sum dynamics had had really been central, right? That that the reason social complexity had grown was because we kept coming up with technologies that either facilitated or encouraged the playing of non-zero-sum games over, over involving more and more people over larger and larger territories. It's, it's obvious how the internet, for example, lets us play non-zero-sum games over large territories. Well, I was saying that uh, that was a big part of the story of the evolution of technology all the way up to that point. To get back to the purpose question, I, I, I further argued that we have to recognize now that there are some non-zero-sum games we're going to have to play successfully if we're going to cross the threshold to a global community, as opposed to having the whole system fall apart amid fighting and bitterness. And those, those are non-zero-sum problems such as you know, environmental problems like climate change. Nations have to cooperate to solve that arms control, not just nuclear arms, but biological weapons and so on, weapons in space, you know, don't overfish the seas. There are a lot of non-zero-sum problems that can only be solved through something that in some sense or another qualifies as global governance. Now, again, to get back to purpose, the reason in one sense the answer is it doesn't matter if there's a higher purpose is, in a way, what I just said, if you buy what I'm saying, it's all you need to know, okay? We've gotten to where we are. If we don't want the world to fall apart, we have to recognize that the na- that nations uh, and other groups need to cooperate across international borders to solve problems they mutually face. In other words, non-zero-sum problems. Whether or not there's a purpose, it's in our interest to solve the problems, right? So in one sense, you don't doesn't matter whether there's a purpose. But if you're the kind of person who is either just philosophically curious and, and wants to speculate about whether there's purpose, or you're the kind of per- person who, who would derive extra motivation in, a, in like addressing these non-zero-sum problems or in doing any of the other things that I think are contribute to the, the furtherance of human progress, then, you know, if it gives you an extra lift, extra inspiration to think, yes, there's some reason to believe we're part of a larger purpose, then it matters to you. And I, and I think maybe it matters to me because I was brought up religiously, you know, and some people weren't. 
Well, some people were brought up religiously and abandoned their religion and don't care if there's a higher purpose. Some people were not brought up religiously, but would like there to be a purpose. And then some people were brought up religiously and don't, you know, weren't brought up religiously and don't care. And so on. there's all kinds of people. And I almost think I'm in a minority these days in caring a whole lot, but I care. I, <laughs> I find it an interesting philosophical question. And I would emphasize I'm making an argument. I'm not claiming divine revelation. It's, and you can, you can sense the logic of the argument in the Dennett video, or, you know, if you have enough time, I can eventually get into it with you. But, but anyway, it, to a lot of people, the question of purpose won't matter. I find it interesting. And, and also, I think an affirmative answer I find uh, motivating. And, and when you say get into it, do, do it was that a segue into consciousness or, or what is? Yeah, consciousness is related, but it's not, it, it wouldn't come up in the first two paragraphs of my nutshell summary of the argument for larger purpose. Let's get, let's get into it then. Okay. okay. You want to hear the, the nutshell, the part of the nutshell argument that doesn't get into consciousness? Yes. So Richard Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker, gets its title yep. from this, uh, I think, 18th century theologian named Paley, and who made an argument for the existence of God. And the argument was, look, if you're walking through a field and you see a rock, there's no particular reason to think the rock has a purpose, right? It just doesn't, you just look at it, it's like, what is this for? I don't know, you could do a lot of things with it. It just doesn't look like it's precision engineered to do anything. Whereas if you come across a pocket watch and you look at it and know oh, it, keeps time, you wind it, it keeps going. And especially if you look at the inside and see all the gears, you know, working toward this goal of making the, the hands go around, um, there's reason to think, well, this, this does have a designer. This has a purpose and a designer. And then Paley goes on and says, well, what would you say if you come across a, a form of life, say a squirrel? Which category does that fall into? Is it more like a rock or is it more like a pocket watch? Well, it's more like a pocket watch, right? I mean, a squirrel is precision engineered to do all kinds of things, to eat, to run, you know, to stay alive. To It's a sophisticated machine. And so Paley said, so it falls into the category of things that have designers, like the pocket watch. Just as a pocket watch has a human who designed it, an animal must have some higher intelligence that designed it. Now... We now know that actually the animals were designed by a process called natural selection, not by some, you know, intelligent being type designer, right? And, and that's a lot of the point Dawkins is making. But Dawkins does, uh, before he goes on to dismiss the, the theological conclusions of Paley, Dawkins says Paley was right to note that the rock, that, that if you look at a rock and then look at an animal, the animal demands a special kind of explanation, okay? It, it, it turns out he was wrong to think it had a, you know, a, a God who designed the animal hands-on, but there must have been something special about the process that created a system, like a squirrel, so imbued with functional integration and, you know, and that pursues goals, right? It pursues food. It pursues sex. It is designed to pursue things. So Dawkins says the distinction he's making is right. It is legitimate. The distinction that Paley is making is right, is what Dawkins says. It is legitimate to look at any physical system and say, does it have the hallmarks of design? 
does, and, 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 and so here's what I'm saying, saying, okay, Richard Dawkins, if it's fair to look at any physical system and ask, does it have the hallmarks of design? And if in fact you've identified some of those hallmarks of design and remember, I, I want to step back and say, you know, a lot of people, including Dan Dennett are fine with saying that natural selection designs things. Okay. It, it in quotes, if you want to put it in quotes, fine. Uh, the word design and say it quote designs things. And if you want to say that uh, a squirrel has a quote purpose of getting its genes in the next generation, fine, put it in quotes. But a lot of philosophers are comfortable saying, yes, animals are designed and they have a purpose. It's just that they're designed by natural selection. So with that as backdrop, let me get back to these two categories that Dawkins is saying, yes, it's legitimate to divide things into designed and undesigned. And, I, and what I'm saying is, well, okay, here's the physical system I want to look at. Let's look at human society right now. It looks kind of like a global superorganism. There, there's a kind of a, like a giant global brain that, we, that individual humans are nodes in, right? We're connected by the internet. You know, does that have a purpose? And, I mean, does that, like a squirrel, have a purpose? And, by the way, if it does, uh, then... If we're, if, we're, if we're calling the, the whole human species a superorganism, then what, and comparing it to a squirrel, which is also an organism, and, and saying, uh, is it like the squirrel in some sense designed, this giant global brain, even if it's leaving aside the question whether it's designed by a, a, an intelligent being, then what corresponds to the, to the, the, um, the squirrel's like embryogenesis, the, the maturation would be the whole history of life on Earth. Okay, so in this, in this analogy, the first strand of DNA is the seed of the giant global brain, okay? And, and that is like the, the so, so all of history has been the maturation of this organism. And, and obviously that's like metaphorically uh, true. You can say that, you can, yeah, you can call it, uh, if you want to call it the maturation of the giant global brain, fine. The question is, is there any reason to think that that has a purpose, okay? Like, uh, and again, if, if it has a purpose and a designer, that in turn could mean a lot of things. Could mean aliens planted the DNA uh, because they wanted to nurture a giant global brain. Could be we're in a simulation and it's a computer programmer who created the, the algorithm and natural selection. It could even be, a meta-natural selection involving the replication of universes, which I won't get into right now because I'm sure we've lost enough people already. But, but the point is it actually could be something analogous to natural selection that is the, quote, designer of the, um, the giant global brain. So this may be – I may have already – we may have lost all our listeners. I, I want to I quickly dispel one misconception. One thing people say is, wait a second. No, there's no designer of the giant global brain – it's just like nuts and bolts, natural selection, and then materialistic cultural evolution that created it. And I'm like, yes, I know that's the process of maturation. Just as with the squirrel, the process of maturation is this physical process of DNA in an egg unfolding, or in a fertilized squirrel egg unfolding into a squirrel. Right. That's a materialistic process. I get that. It just turns out that in the squirrel, it made sense to, to ask, why is there DNA in the egg in the first place? Does that have some larger purpose? And 
the answer is yes. I mean, the purpose imbued by natural selection, the purpose of a squirrel is to, is to get uh, genes into the next generation. That, that is the squirrel's, quote, higher purpose. Um, and it's imbued by natural selection. So I just want to say, like, if you're thinking, wait, I have this killer objection to your argument, is that I personally think it's just natural selection that, and cultural evolution that created the giant global brain. No, that's not a killer objection. We agree on that. The question is, is the whole process, that, that material unfolding, subordinate to some larger purpose, if that's uh, – I'm sorry. This is like it's, – it's hopeless. I, it's, it's strange to me because it's actually a very straightforward argument, and there are much more exotic arguments in philosophy than this. This is not – you know, but, but I found that it helps for me to be able to, like, draw little charts for people – you know, I mean, often they go like at the end, they go, oh, so that's all you're saying, you know, like, oh, OK, well, yeah, I guess you could be right, but I'm not that interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to clarify, I mean, if Steven Pinker came to, to this view exactly, do you think any of his predictions about the future of humanity or how he would you know, operate differently in his own personal life? I know you've been encouraging him to go to meditation retreats <laughs> and stuff like that would, would, would change. I doubt it. I mean, again, they don't necessarily change. I mean, you know, Steve recognizes that there are global problems that need to be solved. And I think he recognizes, although in my review of his book in Wired Magazine, it was kind of a review, a little review essay, his book, um, Enlightenment Now, I kind of took him to task for not sufficiently appreciating how much the problem we need to solve it's more like enlightenment in the Eastern sense than enlightenment in the Western sense. So, I, I mean, I, well, I guess what I would say is I, I'd rather Steve read my Buddhism book and take it seriously than non-zero because I, – and that's a way of saying no. I, I don't think – again, whether, whether the system has a purpose that – my, my, my argument that, that there's at least some evidence that the system has a purpose does not change – any ideas about how the mechanics of the system work? Steve and I are largely in agreement about that and about the problems that have to be solved. He's more optimistic than I am. I think the problems are graver, and and I have a darker view of humankind's likelihood of solving them. And, and it's to that end that that I would hope that that in Wired, you know, I I said. I, I think you know it would help if more people meditated and. and, and, and when you look at what it takes to overcome the kinds of cognitive biases that I, that I think are most, most stand in the way of kind of progress, Stephen, I both think we need, you know, I, I think meditation is, could help. And, and I think I didn't agree entirely with Steve's emphasis on the, on the nature of the, on, on what, on how to approach the, 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 the problem of the, the cognitive biases, although even there, we don't disagree a whole lot on what the psychology of tribalism is like, and we both agree it's a big part of the problem, I think, and, uh, you know, what the, you know, what the nuts and bolts of it are. So, but, but what are the two different proposed solutions? Or, or if yours is, you know, more enlightenment in the Eastern sense, or, or meditation is his more, you know, science, technology, you know, capitalism, like, how, how would you describe the crux of the different approaches, solutions to well, I think, first of all, and this is something he has in common with Sam Harris, I, I think he probably brought, buys to some extent into Sam's view that 
all we need is to get into the spirit of the enlightenment and to be these rational, well, Westerners, uh, maybe I'm putting it too tendentiously, maybe, maybe they would avoid making it sound like a Western thing or something. But, but certainly, you know, I also wrote a piece in Wired about Sam Harris, which yes, he, did, he did not like. And, and the point, you know, Sam's view is that the big, and, and I think Steve shares some of this, that the big problem is these like blatantly irrational people, these people who have these crazy religious superstitions and even think you should kill in the name of them. I don't think that's nearly all the problem. I, 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 I think the, the, the problem is the psychology of tribalism. I think it afflicts us all. I think it afflicts Sam Harris. And I think we all need to do a better job of understanding that it can be just as big a problem in a secular humanist, the, the psychology of tribalism, as in uh, a fundamentalist Muslim or Christian. And, and I think once you understand that, if you know, if you want to, if you agree with me on that, then you may agree that the challenge is really a pretty stiff one because you, you that that also means agreeing that the problem is really subtle. It's not just ridding the world of superstition, right? It's the problem is recognizing how subtly our thoughts and perceptions are biased by various cognitive biases especially those cognitive biases that are implicated in the psychology of tribalism. And once you recognize how subtle the bias is, first of all, you realize we're all subject to it. And you also, you also realize it's hard to eradicate. And that's where I think mindfulness meditation can come in handy because it does, it can lead you to examine the way your mind works in a way that leads you to appreciate more finely how uh, subtly some of these, um, some of these biases play out and how attentive we have to be to our own minds to stand a hope of neutralizing them. Where you both agree, I would say, or you all agree is that there's no going back, uh, that uh, there will be only increasing complexity uh, that we will, you know, merge into some sort of global organism or global brain. And that is perhaps inevitable. Um, and that, that, well, and no, that. I think there's going back. The going back is called collapsing into chaos. I th- but I do think those are the two alternatives. I mean, I think either there will be more global integration, which I think needs to include a certain amount of global governance and the ongoing evolution of technology and, and so on, or we'll just blow the whole thing apart, you know, to, to one degree or another, you know, either in a totally epic nuclear war way or just, you know, a setback that's maybe easier to recover from or something. So, so I don't think, I don't think the progress is inevitable. I don't think Steve quite does, but he's a lot closer to thinking that than I am. Does non-zero, or do you have a view on whether that global governance will be more, or cooperation will be more centralized than decentralized? Because you, you could envision a world where it's a, you know, global UN-like structure, yeah. or you could envision a world where, you know, where the, the crypto enthusiasts ha- have their future and it's, you know, thousands of, uh, you know, independent cities and, and pseudonymous identity and, you know, the sovereign individual thesis. You know, I, I, I think things should be no, no more centralized than necessary, in general, we should look for decentralized ways to solve problems because for one thing, you know, historically, when political entities like nations and empires had centralized rule and the rule has become despotic or tyr- tyrannical or something, the saving grace of the world has been that those 
polities tended to pay a price for, for that. In other words, it, it tended to, in the long run, kind of weakening the weaken the functioning of the polity in some sense, you know, beyond the point, beyond some, some level of tyranny and, and despotism. And, and there were always rivals who could pick up, who could exploit that and pick up the pieces. Right. And the trouble is when you get to the, the, the global level, it, you know, there's no, <laughs> there's no rival to pick up the pieces. And, and, you know, so in other words, the consequences of overly centralized governance could be graver when there's only one polity in the whole world, kind of. So, so I don't like the term global government, government because it does call to mind the idea of, you know, world government headquarters. Uh, I like the term governance because, for one thing, some of these problems are solved on a regional basis. And in general, I, I think you should, you know, cede no more power to some kind of centralized entity than is absolutely necessary. But I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky because there are sometimes arguments for centralization. I'll give you an example. The World Trade Organization, you know, until recently, until Trump showed up, I thought it was actually working not that badly. Uh, Trump has done a number of things to undermine it. He's even systematically uh, refusing to, uh, off, you know, help to appoint. He's, he's, he's somehow limiting the number of judges who are appointing and that may bec- who are appointed to these uh, uh, dispute adjudication councils, and that may come back to be a big problem for the entity. But anyway, I thought it was going along okay, and whereas other things like weapons proliferation treaties weren't going along so so great, and I thought, you know, one thing you could do is you could say, if you want to join the WTO and be a member in good standing and receive the benefits of membership, which is to say the low tariffs that members receive, then you have to sign on to whatever, the bi- a, bio- a, a, a biological weapons convention that's more effective than anything we have now, you know, that includes actual inspections or something like that. So, you know, it may be that there is a kind of logic to kind of conflating functionality in that way, right? Like using membership in the WTO as leverage to get people to sign on to uh, trees and other realms and if that's the only way to do it, then I guess that would be an example where centralization is warranted. But I think you should strive for as much decentralization as possible. You, you've written about how you know, groups have bonded over a common, common enemy, but there have been things that have, uh, but over time, things that have inspired us more than, more than a common enemy. And especially as we, as we collectively get bigger, you know, it, it gets harder to have a, a common enemy. How do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the problem now, it's not just that, is, that the world is a, the size of global society makes it hard to have a common enemy. There's just the fact that there doesn't seem to be one. You know, I mean, the New York Times keeps running these pieces about extra, you know, these UFOs that Air Force pilots may have seen. But uh, aside from that, I don't, I don't see any signs of an invasion from Mars. So th- there's that problem, you know, and that, and this has a long history in science fiction, you know, the day the earth stood still, there was an episode of the outer limits. If anybody remembers that TV show about how these, they got together and faked an invasion from Mars to unify the planet. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a serious point because human beings, nothing galvanizes societies like the perception of a common enemy. And the problem we face now is that we do face we have common enemies, but they tend to be in inanimate form. You know, 
climate change is a common enemy. It's a, it's a threat to, to human beings in many different parts of uh, the world. You could say the proliferation of biological weapons or just pandemics, right? That's a common enemy, the threat of Ebola. And, and so we have a common interest in doing something about that. But those kinds of enemies that don't, you know, don't assume the form of actual human beings pointing a weapon at you tend not to be as uh, galvanizing as the prospect of some kind of immediate invasion. And, and that's a challenge we face. There, there is evidence that, you know, pro- even more abstract sources of kind of non-zero-sumness like climate change, you know, abstract even distant threats can play a role in inducing coordination. So, it, you know, the situation is not without hope, but it is true that as social organization moves toward the global level, there's a kind of a fuel that social organizations upward drift has had in the past that it doesn't have now. You know, I mean, nation states and empires and so on, part of the congealing effect with them was often the perception of, a, of an external enemy arrival. And we don't, we don't have that now. And that's a challenge. The concept of, of, of morals and moral growth, I'm curious, in, 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 with respect to, to non-zero, John Stuart Mill had this idea of the harm principle that you, you should, something along the lines of you should act in so far as you aren't causing you know, harm to, to others. But as we are more and more interconnected, our actions impact others in, in ways that you know, they haven't previously. And, and you've talked about the need for us to have moral growth, moral progress as we sort of uh, you know, become more interconnected uh, and global. And I, I think what that means is, is not just sort of expanding our concept of love and compassion and seeing you know, each other in other people's shoes, but also sort of uh, evolving beyond some of our, some of our wiring for uh, things that even served us in the past, things like really, you know, tireless pursuit of social status. Yeah. Talk a little about that. Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of parts of our mental and emotional equipment that are not as, functionally well-suited to the environment as they once were. I mean, classic example is road rage. You know, if you ask an evolutionary psychologist, what is rage for? They will say, well, we evolved in small hunter-gatherer societies, and it was important to demonstrate that you couldn't be taken advantage of. If somebody just steals your mate, steals your food, you basically have to punish them. And if you get in a fight with them, even if you lose, as long as you inflict real damage, people will at least understand that you're not to be trifled with. That, that would have really mattered. And so there's a good chance that the emotion of rage, moralistic indignation, you know, the sense that you are morally in the right to assault someone, evolved you know, in that context for that reason. And, and one reason, part of the logic behind this, is that you were living with the same group of people day in and day out. You know, hunter-gatherer, not a lot of transition in hunter-gatherer populations, right? It's 50, 100, 150 people. Some people die. Some people are born. There may be people migrating from the outside. But by and large, everyone in your social universe knows whether you stood up for your rights and punched a guy in the nose or not. But now, you know, in the modern environment, you take road rage Obviously, the rationale falls totally apart. There's no one who's witnessing your road rage who matters. None of them are ever getting, they don't even know who you are. There is no logic in risking your life to, to bring some perceived culprit to justice in, in that kind of social universe. And yet we do it, right? So that's, 
one of many examples of how things that are part of human nature are no longer in our interest. By the way, they were never necessarily in our interest. I mean, they, they, there are things that are in the interest of getting our genes spread that actually take a toll on us. So even in a hunter-gatherer village, it is not safe to assume that human nature is in all ways uh, serving the, you know, the individual's pursuit of happiness or even security. Um, but, but in a modern environment, there's an even greater mismatch between human nature and the actual interests of the organism. And you're right. I mean, status, status during evolution probably correlated with reproductive success or with the prospects for survival of the offspring and so on. Well, first of all, that's a good example of something that that's good for the genes to get a lot of genes in the next generation. It's not necessarily good for the person tirelessly pursuing the status and getting in a lot of fights over it, right? It's so even there, uh, status has never been something designed for the psychological well-being of the individual. It's been designed to get genes in the next generation. And now in a modern environment, it's, if anything, even more ridiculous since, you know, you're probably not even getting a lot more genes in the next generation. People use contraceptions. I mean, the status may or may not be converted into sex. The sex may or may not be converted into offspring. You know, there's also just the fact that we are, like all animals, we're designed to never be satisfied. And this is a an issue that Buddhism addresses head on. But we are designed by natural selection to pursue these things that always seem as if they'll bring us lasting happiness, like the next promotion or whatever. You know, the, the, the happiness, the gratification evaporates pretty quickly because that's how natural selection keeps animals uh, motivated. So, yeah, status. And, and, ju- and just uh, the, the, you know... B- the pursuit of status among the downsides, leave aside the question of whether it uh, conduces to the happiness of the individual pursuing the status, to the extent that it involves rampant material acquisition, um, you know, it's, it's wasteful from the point of view of the planet. Uh, and, you know, uh, if you're, you know, it leads you to buy a, a huge, powerful uh, car that's bigger than you need and guzzles more gas than is necessary, that's a, that's a downside from the planet's point of view. So yeah, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of human nature that was really never designed either for the individual being, uh, being's welfare per se, or for the good of the group per se. Although here, some evolutionary psychologists would argue that more of it was designed for the good of the group than you might think, but leave that aside. That's never been strictly speaking, the criterion of organic design. The criterion is genetic proliferation, which may or may not coincide with psychological well-being, may or may not coincide with the good of society. Certainly in the modern environment, uh, in many cases, blindly obeying the dictates of human nature does not conduce to psychological well-being, does not conduce to the good of the overall society. Status is an interesting one because if, if you, you say, you know, we're wired to, um, to focus on our survival and, and reproduction uh, you know, survival is, is, is a lot easier to be taken account for, you know, we're, and, and, you know, if we're wired in non-zero, zero-sum environments, uh, you know, we now have a positive-sum environment for, for survival and that, you know, you making more money theoretically helps me make more money too, you know, uh, you know, you, there's just an abundance of it or, or that's the idea, whereas social status hasn't been seen that way or hasn't been that way because attention is finite and, uh, you know, relative rank is finite and, 
I wonder if that means for in order for a world for, for status to become more positive, some or sort of a you know mass elevating of people's statuses, there has to be more virtual worlds, you know, virtual relationships or, or things that enable people, I, I, I don't know, to create new relative, rel, relative ranking. How do you think about that? I haven't thought about that much. I mean, it's true. Like status per se is a zero sum game. And, you know, just in the simple kind of baseline sense, if there's a hierarchy of people and you're saying being number one is better than being number two, being number two is better than being number three. Well, obviously competition for those positions is entirely zero sum. Unlike, for example, some kinds of economic interaction, which are non-zero sum, we can, two of us can collaborate to both be better off in economic terms, but on a simple status hierarchy, no, it's dog eat dog. It's a good question. I, I mean, it's, 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 uh, I mean, one way to get around that is, I, I guess, to bring artificial beings into the picture. I, I hadn't thought about this, but if like you're immersed in some virtual world, I mean, if you're, if you're playing a video game with a bunch of people and it's a conventional video game, it's still zero sum. There's a winner and a loser. But I guess if there's a bunch of virtual beings that don't have a real being behind them and you're competing with them, you can come out on top in a way that's not at their expense. You, so that's possible. I don't know. This is, sounds like you've thought about this more than I have. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> I think you should be the one who makes a billion dollars off of this idea. It's too late for me. Well, you know, I, I actually actually been thinking there there could be a, a non-zero venture capital firm that invests in things that help uh, increase you know interconnectedness among among people. I think it'd be a pretty good investment thesis, well, and I think you know, this is how you get rich. Of, um, I mean, a lot of money's been made doing that just because non-zero sum dynamics are so valuable, right? I mean, you, when you think about it, much of Silicon Valley much of the wealth accumulated in Silicon Valley has consisted of creating platforms on which people can play non-zero-sum games. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Now, there's zero-sum games get paid there, get played there as well. But, it, it, I mean, especially on maybe Twitter. But, you know, if you... I mean, even uh, in a much more oblique sense, you know, just a software platform like an operating system, the the, the people who use it are, are playing non-zero-sum games. So, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of interconnection happens naturally. Just people, people pursuing money will think of ways to, new ways to link people up because there's money in it, because people want to play non-zero-sum games with other people. They have people they share interests with or whatever and want to get together with. They have professional interests in common, whatever. But, I mean, the challenge we face right now is that, you know, some of these famously now, some of these platforms uh, have certain dynamics that are reinforcing, you know, tribalism, political polarization. And it seems to be that uh, the pursuit of money by the, by the people running these platforms exacerbates the problem in some cases. Like if, if you know, in some cases, if all you want to maximize is engagement, best way to do that is to make people upset and dislike each other, you know? So I'd say that's certainly a big, I think the challenge is subtler than incentivizing capitalists to, to get people to interconnect with one another. That happens almost automatically. I, I think it's the challenge is, is making as many of the platforms as possible being places where as much of the interconnection as possible is benign. And there's not the gratuitous, 
and needless deepening of hostilities uh, between groups, which there's a lot of right now. You know, it's a problem. One thing I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on is sort of the difference between moral growth and moral progress, to the extent there is a difference, on sort of a micro scale uh, versus a macro scale. And, um, you know, maybe on a micro level, it's, it's you know, what you talk about, love, compassion, seeing from, from the other perspective, more communal, tribal, and maybe on a macro scale, it's, uh, you know, more market-based, more, more decentralized, or, or it could look something like Singapore. I don't, it doesn't have to look necessarily like the USA or even, even democracy. I, I guess I'm just curious if you think there, there could be a strong differentiation. You know, there's a saying of like, you know, socialism, the sheets, capitalism, the streets, or like in my family, I'm a socialist, but in, uh, you know, my country, I'm a libertarian just because of how you know, things are sort of different at, at scale. Let me put that on hold slightly and say something related that, uh, just because I want to, I want to briefly revisit the purpose issue. I mean, I had said that the, you know, I gave you kind of a nuts and bolts argument for purpose. But if, if you want to enrich the argument, or if you want to ask, well, assuming there's a purpose, is there any reason to think it's a purpose with a moral direction, which purposes don't have to have, of course. Uh, in which case, you might start, you know, or, or if you want to ask, well, does the word like divine purpose apply? And you might say, well, only. Certainly not if it has no moral direction. Well, I do think history has a moral direction. As we've been drawn into non-zero-sum relationships with more and more people over greater and greater distances to a point where now all of us are involved in non-zero-sum relationships in some sense with people all over the world. I mean, if you buy a car, it, there are workers all over the world who, who built it. You may not know them, but you actually have an interest in in a certain sense, in their, uh, in their, in their flourishing, you don't, you don't, uh, it's because they're alive and, and well that they built you a car, right? So as, you know, as you, these, I, I mean, again, it gets back to the argument I, I made in the evolution of God. I, I think the perception that you are in a non-zero-sum relationship with someone leads you to a more respectful attitude toward them. You can't do business with people very readily while dehumanizing them and showing contempt for them and total disregard for their rights, right? Just imagine you're on an airplane and and you strike up a conversation with somebody from some other country and you realize you guys have actually a common interest, you know, you're, you're, and you're starting to think, man, maybe I could do do business with this person. We're, We're kind of, we're on the same wavelength and so on. And then suppose the subject turns to like what their religion is and they tell you what their religion is. Well, whatever their religion is, you're going to be in a mood to think positive thoughts about it, right? I mean, you're, you're just going to be, once you see the possibility of collaboration with someone, you're not inclined to shower them in disrespect and contempt. And at a more concrete level, I think once nations perceive themselves to be deeply economically intertwined with another nation, they're less likely to drop a nuclear bomb on it or something. So I think the expansion of uh, non-zero-sumness since our hunter-gatherer days uh, to a global scope has led to moral progress. And I think this is actually chronicled in, in, uh, in Peter Singer's book, The Expanding Circle. He doesn't his explanation of it isn't particularly the one I've just given you, but the fact that there's been a growth in the circle of moral consideration is well documented in that book where he says that, you know, 2,500 years ago, members of one Greek city state considered members of another Greek city state subhuman. 
Then they decided, no, all Greeks are human. It's Persians who aren't human. And, and, and you know, we've come a long way until now. You generally, in America today, people generally at least pay lip service to the idea that people everywhere have basic human rights and deserve to be respected. I mean, even some of the more egregious bigots, by and large, know they're not supposed to talk like bigots, you know, whereas 100 years ago, it was different. So I, I, I think there's been moral progress built into the expansion of non-zero sumness that has been the kind of driving force of the growth in social complexity in the, in the scope and, and uh, in the complexity and, and breadth of human societies, you know, geographic scope of human societies. And so that's, that's just something I want to note that is interesting in its own right. You could say it adds to the argument for purpose. You might not. But anyway, that's a tangent I want to throw Throw, throw in, and maybe I've spent so much time on that that you should give me a brief refresher on the question you actually asked. No, no, sure. Question was how moral progress looks at different scales, like in a micro level, you know, between you know tribes and communities, versus on a macro level, you know, uh, the ability to think, you know, in terms of systems and um, how, how they organize with one another, and that they might be more uh, decentralized or more market based, or or basically that the future could look more like Singapore than the USA. <laughs> Or in terms of macro do you mean can we um, kind of morally evaluate alternative systems of social organization and say centralized power is inherently less moral than say a decentralized system, things like that? Or, or yeah, or, or just the, the when you talk about more progress, I, I, I think you sort of view sort of bottoms up. Hey, if I view my neighbor as or you know someone in the um, you know, uh, Middle East or I don't know, some country that we have hostile relations with, with more sympathy that, that, that can scale where sometimes, you know, the way systems are designed and the way incentives are, are organized seems to be that, that, that the study of that seems to be very different than the study of empathy. And I, I Paul Bloom's book against empathy, you interviewed Paul, of course, or that empathy isn't enough necessarily. It's also building um, systems intelligently and, and to well certainly i mean i would say and i don't know if this directly gets at what you're saying i would say following our moral intuitions is not a surefire guide to behaving in an actually moral fashion i, I mean paul paul's point is well kind of yeah is a subset of that i mean he's saying that empathy actually all often misleads us so so that is a case i mean this is a micro macro thing Empathy at the micro level often leads to, can lead to macro, you know, like policies and so on at the macroscopic level that arguably are not morally optimal. I mean, uh, an example I think Paul didn't use, but uh, given my own ideological persuasion, I'm inclined to use it. When we're being encouraged to go to war, you know, people always tugging on the heartstrings. It's like, Think of the children in Iraq who are suffering under tyranny, which is a perfectly valid thing to say. It's just that it's easy to get people to think in a not super careful way if you get them sufficiently revved up emotionally. I mean, you know, the first Iraq War, the Persian Gulf War, which I, I that one I actually didn't, I, I kind of opposed it in advance, but not the way I did the 2003 war. But anyway, the um, that, that they they brought this, these people into Congress who testified that uh, in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, they unplugged incubators in the hospital so the babies would die. Well, it turned out to be a lie. <laughs> People 
speaking turned out to be not nurses or whatever they would represented themselves as. They were actually like PR people for some group that wanted to invade Iraq. But, but still, even if it is the case that there's that kind of, that there are those kinds of human stakes, and there often are, you know, certain kinds of moral thinking, including empathy, can cloud our vision and lead us to, uh, to heedless of uh, consequence. I mean, Paul's example was a classic example is the baby Jessica in the well. You're probably too young to remember this, but, oh, this story dominated the news. It was a baby in, I think, Midland, Texas, where I actually lived once. Jessica was caught in a well. <laughs> it was, you know, and look, that, that's important, but, I mean, it complete. I mean, the society almost ground to a halt over, you know, the drama of baby Jessica in the well. It went on for days. They finally got Jessica out. I'm, look, I'm very happy for Jessica, but we lost a lot of man hours. <laughs> uh, and that's the kind of thing Paul was – that's one of the examples Paul was making. But, but you know, I mean – and again, I don't know if this gets directly to your question, but, you know, the manipulation of emotions by – political leaders to various ends is something we need to always scrutinize. Sometimes they're consciously manipulating them to evil ends. Sometimes they're not, but sometimes when they're not, it's still, the thing still bears watching. Um, So I I I don't know. I I feel I still haven't answered your question. I'll ask it in a different way, which is, is there a world uh, you envision that still has moral progress that looks closer to China than it does the United States. Oh. No. Okay. Well, I mean, I have kind of two reactions to that. My first reaction is I, I try to be humble in criticizing other, the values of other societies, you know, like, you know, I mean, for example, uh, the one child policy that China is not adhering to so strictly anymore, but that just blew my mind. I mean, can you imagine if somebody in America said, I'm going to pass a law where you can only have one child, right? And like there being anything other than open revolt and blood in the streets. I mean, that's, and, and, you know, I think they're, they're obviously that dictate came from a, a, a government that had already amassed um, power, but, you know, and, and, and maybe had the power to make its dictates felt. But, there, you know, there are people who have also argued that there's also a cultural thing at work here where there's more willingness to subordinate the individual to perceive societal good. Maybe that played a role. I don't know. But, I'm, I, I, I mean, I try to be reluctant to just so quickly use my own society's values as a, the, the fundamental reference scale. Because, for one thing, that kind of thing does help us get us into wars. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the general idea that, you know, to the extent that societies aren't doing things our way, we really need to teach them a lesson. And if that involves invasion, well, so be it. You know, at the same time, when you look at, I mean, first of all, I don't think the, I don't even think the one child policy was smart. I think maybe, I mean, I think if you had to limit birth, I would say two two children would have been a more, a policy that would have been worked out more, worked out more to China's advantage. I mean, talk about radical experimentation. They don't even, you know, there's never been a society where people don't have siblings, what, what effect does that have on the psychology, right, of people? Mm-hmm. Who knows? But anyway, on the other hand, you know, you look at what they're doing now with the Uyghurs, and I just, you know, I try to be, again, humble in my approach, but 
I don't see myself ever saying that, yeah, it, it could in principle be just as good to uh, take members of one ethnic group and, you know, subject them to re-education and, and, and so on as to do it our way. Uh, although I guess if you ask me what's my basis for saying that, I, I would ultimately probably fall back on a kind of utilitarian argument where just that kind of thing is not is usually not going to work out well you know, um, in, in, in some kind of practical sense. It, it, so I might come at it from a slightly less, well, from a different perspective than a lot. Right. Of it. it is interesting. And I, I think what you and uh, Pinker, for example, would argue for different reasons is this, this version of mistake theory against conflict theory. Mistake theory basically says that if people come to, uh, that conflict comes from basically people either not, you know, coming to truth or not being able to see adequately, you know, it, uh, from each other's perspective, but that if we had either moral growth in your case, or you know, became more rational in Sam Harris's case, we would come to uh, come to alignment and come to peace and, and collaborate. Whereas conflict theory says that uh, people disagree inherently because there's zero sum, you know, uh, conflict out there. You know, things like status. So there's no reason to agree. And the only question is how to resolve that conflict. Well, I kind of, I think I kind of belong to both schools. I mean, there are zero sum sources of conflict. And people are going to contest one another in those cases often. And they're not competing just out of a failure to understand the situation. They're competing because they do understand that it's a zero-sum conflict. I guess my claim is that there are so many situations that are non-zero-sum where we're either not recognizing that or for whatever reason not playing them successfully to win-win outcomes uh, and in many of those cases, the problem is failing to understand the perspective of the other person, for example. And by that, I don't mean emotional empathy like feel their pain so much as cognitive empathy, just understanding how they're processing information, right? Like, is this thing that seems like an offensive move by Iran, is that offensive or do they view that as defensive, right? That's important information. And I, I think often there is a, you know, I'm a big believer in cognitive empathy generally. And, and, and I think it is one of the most common impediment to playing non-zero sum games to a win-win outcome. But I, I don't deny that there have been zero sum games. I mean, I think one piece of good news about the world is that I think war used to, I, there have been times when wars were closer to being winnable than they are now. If you know, I mean, you know, Back when most of the value in economy came from the land, right? Like a couple thousand years ago, agriculture is the main source of value. And maybe there weren't such robust trade mechanisms for harvesting some of the value of land that existed elsewhere. Well, then maybe war, you know, in a not that I would approve of it, but maybe, yeah, you could just conquer and do a lot better by conquering than by not conquering. I, I, I don't, but I don't think that's really true anymore. I mean, you know, we can derive more value from the Chinese economy now than we would be able to in the aftermath of an out and out war with China. Right. So that at least is, 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 is good. You know, it's, it's heartening to me the, the, you know, this, this, this expansion of non-zero sum dynamics so, so that, I mean, to get back to your original question, even granted that, yes, there are conflicts that, quote, make sense in the sense that 
the contestants accurately understand this is zero-sum situation, yes, but in certain realms, I think that's just less often the case than it used to be. And I think one of them is, is the realm of relations among nations. I don't think war very often makes, winds up working from anybody's point of view. Except when it's a, you know, pre precedes zero sum. You, you had this article about how Trump could proceed, you know, more zero sum or non-zero sum engagement. That, that he could perceive more? Or that, that, uh, that the challenge of Trump could encourage, encourage oh, us yeah. to pursue, yeah, create. Well, I, I mean, I hope Trump will be a kind of a wake-up call. But, but, I mean, Trump is like, you know, yeah, so I wrote this long piece for Wired in the actual physical magazine, which is a rare experience these days, writing for a physical thing. But uh, they asked me to do uh, a, a kind of update of the argument non-zero in light of Trump, because he really is like, if you, you know, if somebody had read the book non-zero, said, well, who could we make president to thwart the aspirations expressed in this book? It would be Donald Trump, pretty much. And, you know, I mean, he really views the world in a zero some way, not purely. I mean, for example, you know, uh, a shot across the bow with as far as tariffs go, that can be rational bargaining and it can work out. But he carries these things well beyond that point. He's like Mr. Zero Sum. And, and so, right, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I argued in the piece that, I mean, first of all, I hope it'll be a wake-up call and show us that we really can't go much further down the path of blind zero sumness. But also, perversely, there are a couple of areas where he may act, the policies he champions may actually, is probably not worth getting into, but may wind up setting the stage for the development of global governance, ironically, because he professes to hate that. But, yeah. And then it just the TLDR there, the too long don't read is, what's one example? Well, and this is a little bit ideologically loaded. I, I mean, the point I made, one thing I said is, look, one hope is that even the people who consider themselves ardent nationalists will realize that even some of their own goals are actually best pursued through international cooperation, in a sense. And, you know, it's like, it's, you know, the, 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 the problems afflicting, uh, for example, the white working class or whatever, the, the problems afflicting a lot of traditional blue-collar uh, vocations, those are not imaginary, you know. Uh, yeah, there, there is, you know, international competi- wage competition absolutely undermines the floor of wages in the United States. That's not a hallucination. But you may find that as a practical matter, your best hope for addressing that is through an international mechanism. And the example I gave is that, you know, Trump in his newly, whatever he calls his, his version of NAFTA, I forget the acronym, it, it, he did under pressure from labor uh, or the labor the, the, the kind of labor avatars and who are whispering in his ear, he did include uh, a thing where uh, uh, it has to do with the wage, the average wage level in factories in Mexico that build cars or car parts or something. If the average wage that's gone into a car is below a certain level, then it won't be eligible for kind of free trade treatment under this new 
NAFTA. And what that was, what that it was an incentive uh, for Mexican factories to either raise wages, which itself reduces the pressure on American workers, the competitive pressure, or not build the cars, which is even better for uh, American auto workers. And, you know, interestingly, that had the support of the new left-wing government in Mexico because, you know, it's a kind of a minimum wage. You know, left-wing governments tend to go for minimum wages, even though economists will tell you, well, there's a few workers who are going to be priced out of the market altogether, whatever. Um, still, uh, progressive governments tend to favor minimum wage agreements. So, so you had, in effect, you had workers in Amer- the political representatives of workers in Mexico combining with the political representative of workers in America in this case, that was actually Trump, who was, who was trying to do something for wages in, in uh, American auto factories. Working together, not to, instead of destroying a trade deal, just to put a feature in it that, was, that they saw as win-win, good for workers there and, and good for workers here, which may seem ironic because there is competition among them. But the way the politics played out, it made sense. And my point was just that, you know, if we can have some examples like that, where people who consider themselves victims of the globalized economy find that they can actually use instruments of global governance, even trade agreements, to address their problems, then you can maybe be able to get to a point where it's no longer a contest between globalists who want to nurture trade agreements and other forms of global governance and nationalists who want to tear it all down. It may, it may get to a point where, okay, you know, NAFTA exists, European Union exists, and what we're arguing about is what form those things will take. I, I think that would be a much more constructive world, right, where the, the ethno-nationalists are at least engaged in discourse about what the policies will be in trade agreements and in other kind of transnational uh, instruments of governance. I thought that, that might be good. So that, that's a case where I'm saying Trump Even as he rails against global governance, he actually, you know, did a kind of pioneering thing in the realm of global governance. I mean, I don't know if NAFTA, if the new NAFTA will ever get passed in Congress, but leave that aside. This did go further in in this direction of kind of introducing a kind of a progressive uh, element in the labor agreements in NAFTA than had been done um, before. And, And if that turns out to be an example of the way you you nurture respect for global governance, even among these so-called nationalists, then Trump will ironically have actually helped pave the way for the continued evolution of global governance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of other implications, non-zero um, or attributions, you, you had a few podcast episodes uh, with uh, uh, Brett Weinstein uh, of the intellectual dark web. Uh, and uh, right. he, he mentioned at the end that he was inspired by non-zero or built upon that uh, to come up with his own sort of theory of evolutionary psychology that sort of, he talks about this, you know, great transition or there were sort of these moments of great transitions and some of that thinking inspires the intellectual dark web. I don't know if you remember this, but I was a bit lost following all that. So I'm curious if you could summarize the crux of what you think uh, he's getting at. No, I was a little lost too, honestly. I mean, I was hoping to have it back for another conversation I, it's definitely an idiosyncratic theory he has that he sees as being grounded in the logic of non-zero that I think has to do 
he's arguing that there, there could have been the evolution of a, like a biological, psychological adaptation in human beings that does something or other at particular times. And I, as I think he was saying we're at one of those times, but I, I, I didn't get totally clear on it. I wanted to have him back again. I emailed him about it, didn't hear from him. And I wasn't sure whether uh, I didn't hear because I had just written that piece so critical of uh, fellow dark Weber, Sam Harris, uh, because, because Brett was a little critical of that on Twitter. I, I you know, I, I'm not sure. I may have alienated the entire intellectual dark web with that piece and with, with other things I've said, but Hey, we all have enemies. So it is interesting because I've been, um, you know, I've been reading uh, Gerard, and, and you know, he talks about how you know the more um, similar people are, the, the fiercer the, the battles, the more vicious the, the rivalry. And, and you guys are so similar in in, in so many ways. But what do you think would need to be true for you to uh, to embrace uh, yourself as a card carrying member of the IDWs, assuming they they they'd want you? Like, what what would need to change in either your view? I don't think they want me. Don't worry. <laughs> what, what do you think would need to change in either your views or or change in their views? Like if you if you could imagine a world where that where that happened, what would that well, look like? I think the the frequently uh, expressed suspicion about the intellectual dark web that you hear from the left is that they are not actually equal opportunity free speech advocates. Okay, that when Ilhan Omar is accused of anti-Semitism for saying something that, in my view, is not inherently anti-Semitic, and in any event, I, I think even a modestly charitable interpretation of what she said could lead you to think it's certainly possible that she wasn't speaking from a position of uh, anti-Semitism. And there were, there are actually two separate utterances. The second one seemed to be particularly clear cut. I'm trying to think the first one was about the Benjamins and the second, well, in any event, it has been pointed out that people in the IDW, Ben Shapiro and so on, Sam Harris, dude, tend not to spring so rapidly to her defense as they do to the defense of someone who was deemed politically incorrect uh, for suggesting gender differences or maybe saying something about who knows the, the, who who knows anyway, the, 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 um, you know, I, 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 um, that's, that's a claim. And, And I think, I think it, there may be some validity to it. And, and I mean, also, I mean, just as a separate matter, like what's the deal with Ben Shapiro? I mean, what? Yeah. if I were them, if I were in charge of public relations for the IDW, <laughs> I would like buy that guy a ticket to Antarctica one way. I mean, he's just not, I don't want to sound like nasty. I, I mean, look, intellectual dark web, three letters there. What does the I stand for? He is, <laughs> you know, I mean, give me a break. How did that happen? And, and it's just a good, it's like, do they have any leftists who are so far from meeting the ideals, the, the intellectual ideals that something uh, called the intellectual dark web should aspire to? I mean, look, some of these people are really smart. You know, Steve Pinker is thought of as a member of the IDW. I don't know who else. I mean, I guess is Dawkins, you know, yeah. there, there's some really smart people, but let's face it. He's not a serious intellectual, and, and, and it only deepens suspicions that they actually have an ideological agenda when they seem willing to embrace this guy. Who, and it isn't just that he's far right. It's that, you know, he's, he's had these famous, uh, I think, frankly, racist tweets about Arabs. 
And then he has this story about them and okay, that was a long time ago and fine. But there are no, my point is there's no examples like that on the left, right? The IDW, look, it's fine for people with any kind of intellectual affinity to get themselves together and call themselves whatever they want. But I think they want to convince us that they don't have an ideological agenda. And if they want to convince me of that, they've got a ways to go. I think they need you, Bob. Well, they, <laughs> no, they don't. No, they yeah. don't. Well, to balance, to balance out Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Or, or, or I mean, you're obviously not, you're not as left as he, as he is right, but they need to deepen their bench. <laughs> Deep, or, yeah, well, that, yeah, that would help. I mean, I mean, yeah, if, if they really did, if they did deepen their bench, that would help. Uh, going back to religion, which is a topic where you disagree with some of these people, but I, I want to ask a different question on it one is basically why haven't there been more religions uh, this might be a, a silly question but there there are disruptive technologies every 40 years you know facebook you know beats yeah. you know microsoft google and and we keep getting you know but in religion all we get is iphone upgrades no no apple watch or no new yeah news. why well, is that why aren't there more operating systems why aren't there more um social platforms. I think the answer is the same in all cases, positive network externalities for one thing. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. If you, if you ask like, why did there come to be one religion in all one dominant religion in all of the Roman empire, which of course set the stage for Christianity's dominance thereafter, there were positive network externalities. The more Christians there were, the more valuable it was to be a Christian, you know, because Early Christianity, I mean, at the level of actual commerce and business, it paid off. I mean, the the network uh, you can see in the in the um, you know in the New Testament in the letters of Paul, you know the 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 group the network of Christians Paul wove together by going from city to city included a lot of uh, business people, merchants, and one thing they could do if they wanted to travel to another city to do business was they would have a home. They, they, they could stay with Christians. And, you know, we take, now we think it's like, what's the big deal? You travel, you, you, you find out, you know, what the hotels are. You stay in a hotel. Well, they didn't really have hotels, you know. And so um, it wasn't so easy to get plugged in in a new city. And, and it greatly mattered to have Christians to draw on. So I think, and, and, and other kinds of benefits. I mean, personal, you know, there are personal psychological benefits to drawing on belonging to a church. But Muslims, you know, we think we think of, um, you know, uh, what's one famous feature of, of early Islam is jihad, is conquest. But, um, you know, trade networks, you know, Islam was a, you know, it was an economic platform, as was as was uh, Christendom. Right. It, it was, you know, shared values. The rules of the road are agreed on. You can trust these people because they they think if they cheat you, they'll go to hell. So as these networks grow, the bigger the network, uh, the more value there is in um, belonging to it. And, and that's, that's, you know, it's more, the story's more complicated than that. Yeah, but, but even then, because, you know, Facebook will get disrupted in the next 30 years or 40 years, whereas, you know, religions last you know, hundreds or thousands of years, right? Well, so far, but I mean, disruption used to take longer than it takes now. Christianity is getting disrupted now in a, in a way yeah, I mean, you know, religion may be a more, religions may be more long-lasting, but I, I also think the cycle of disruption is just faster now. And, you know, I'd also say that 
Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, well, so like I said, the story is more complicated. I mean, religions come to characterize entire political entities during history, they have at least. And so they become intertwined with empires. And the success of the empire has tended to extend the religion. So even leaving aside what I said about the, how positive network externalities drove the expansion of Christianity, once you've got pol- large polities that identify with a particular religion, you've got a whole political system that is reinforcing adherence to the religion and so, and also just whatever the logic is behind larger political entities then tends to drive, you know, the largeness in religious entities. So it's a complicated story. I do think positive network externalities play a big role. The, you talk about the destruction that's happening a little bit right now. I think about it in terms of, you know, this sort of unbundling. And one of the things that's is being unbundled is sort of the communal uh, elements, you know, by secular equivalents, but also by by things like uh, you know cult fitness, you know, CrossFit or, or SoulCycle or or other you know you know mindfulness meditation being sort of mm-hmm. unbundled from from Buddhism in, in, in some sense, and that the, the communal element has has been unbundled, but that the sort of what, what hasn't been unbundled as well is sort of this idea of communal sense making institutions, basically what is truth and how do people you know collectively come to understand truth and and then you know spread that in, in ways that, that resonate. Does that make sense to you or how do you think about that? Well, you're saying, so what has been unbundled or at least fragmented are certain aspects, certain goods that religions used to deliver. Yeah. You're saying like yeah, um, yeah. sense of communal, well, just community. I mean, you know, it used to be that when I was a kid, my, our church was an important part of our social infrastructure. And so just sheer um, socializing. Yeah. Has, has, become more fragmented but what is it you're saying has not yet been fragmented and and is on is on a more unified platform i would say community has been fragmented but in some ways has become coherent at least in sub subcultures what has been fragmented but not coherent is meaning or, or truth there's sort of this great atomization of you know a little bit of mindfulness meditation a little bit of uh yeah. you know list a little bit of that and, and it doesn't really cohere in, ter- in terms of meaning and and truth no, I agree. I mean, the, uh, and I guess it's part of the challenge America faces in terms of kind of just sticking together it, is that is it less is agreed upon in those realms. And it's a real challenge. I, and and I, I mean, I just honestly, I mean, the sheer rate of change, like the thing I don't understand about these singularity people, <laughs> you know, who think that like, who have some kind of faith that as change accelerates, you get to a point where everything is turns out wonderfully. Like, isn't the logical thing to worry about the opposite? That that the faster things change, the harder it is to adapt in time, right? And I, I just, you know, what you're describing is like a lot of things right now where I just think, man, I, I don't think it's my imagination that things are changing faster and faster. The very texture of life has been transformed since I was young. I'm of course a lot older than you, but still what you're talking about is a good example. And, and, you know, it's like, we don't foresee these things. It's like the internet, when it first showed up, I mean, you've heard the stories, everyone had their, their, there were various, very optimistic stories about it. And I think, and I wrote fairly early on about the fragmenting 
tendencies of it in the in the in the uh, early mid '90s. Uh, I did, but I don't think we fully reckoned with how deeply and bitterly fragmenting and polarizing a potentially unifying technology like communications technology could be until it really was upon us. And now it is. I, I mean, I don't, uh, to get back to your original question, uh, I mean, are you suggesting that we, it would help if someone could promulgate some kind of thing that is in some ways a spiritual worldview that would appeal to a lot of people and, and a lot of us would be on the same platform? Yes, or, or, or there'd be many, uh, or we do what we have done for community. There would be soul cycle or, you know, uh, or CrossFit equivalents. But yeah, that there's be a sort of, you know, surge of religious entrepreneurs who are trying to create, you know, meaning-making structures and infrastructure for people. And we'd be on either, you know, probably a few big platforms and a bunch of, you know, long tail of, of smaller ones. Yeah, might be nice. I mean, what I, I mean, I, I guess right now, you're seeing more fragmentation at the higher levels of affluence and education and maybe not seeing that at lower levels of affluence and education. I mean, for example, in, you know, in, in Latin America, there's been kind of movement from one platform to another. There's been Catholicism has faced challenges, but the, the, um, you know, evangelical religions have been doing very well. I wouldn't say it's a uniform story across all sectors of society and the world, uh, that there's fragmentation, but certainly in the realm, the cultural realm you and I occupy, there is that. I mean, I have, you know, I feel I have a kind of spiritual worldview, but I've never articulated it as such. And it, it, it draws on things like Buddhism. But, uh, you know, maybe I should work harder to articulate it for my own good, just so I'm clear on what I believe. But um, I, I like to think that there is a worldview that offers people the personal, at least some of the personal benefits that spirituality and religion have offered and enlist them in the mission of helping the world and keeping it on track as it, you know, continues to evolve toward higher levels of social organization. And, you know, not maybe that's misleading, but, as it continues to globalize. Because again, I do think the only alternative to, to more integration among peoples is trouble. So it would, it would be nice. Right. Going to the sort of micro macro, back to that for a second, like one on a micro, you know, or uh, one solution is sort of increasing moral growth. Well, basically, you know, there's this quote of, uh, up really quick. you know, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology and sort of, you know, what the moral progress is asking for is to improve the, uh, the paleolithic emotions. But you can imagine a different world, or, or, or additionally, a world where we said we're going to give everybody equity in each other. Or everybody gets equity in the United States or gets equity in other countries, maybe. And so we get richer uh, materially when China gets richer, when Russia gets richer. That might be improving the medieval institutions and you know, creating incentives for us to care beyond that. Is that something that you resonate with or you feel as sort of equal. Well, I, hadn't, uh, I, hadn't heard, I hadn't heard that particular idea. I mean, I do believe that our mechanism of, of adjustment shouldn't consist only of trying to, you know, solve kind of adjust the expression of human nature 
or modify the expression of our emotions and so on in ways that reconcile us to the world. I certainly agree that innovative policy ideas matter. I mean, what you said is interesting because, of course, it was already the case that a lot of affluent upper-class people do see themselves as having a stake in the success of other countries. Their mutual funds grow, they're, you know, they're, or they're actually doing business with China, or they just perceive that smartphones are cheaper because of China or whatever, whereas other sectors of society feel more victimized by globalization. I, I think, you know, certainly some version of what you're talking about needs to happen, which is to give people who can accurately say that at least in the short term, they are casualties of globalization, give them more of a stake in the success of the system. I I haven't thought carefully about how exactly you do that. And so I haven't thought about whether you do literally what you said or metaphorically what you said, but one or the other, yeah. I sort of two big questions to to, to close on. Uh, And they're both on, you know, going to this concept of instincts. Uh, And, and you you know, you talk about in why Buddhism is true that, the Buddha was sort of the earliest to not only, you know, uh, diagnose the problem that, uh, you know, our evolutionary goals and our happiness are not always aligned or even aligned respective because they were, you know, wired for a world which looked very different than the one we have today based on survival and reproduction, let alone happiness, but that it also offered a, a solution. And even within Buddhism, you know, obviously, you know, they're more this sort of, you know, tantra versus renunciation dichotomy of, you know, feel the feelings versus, you know, renounce the feelings. I'm, I'm, I may be botching it a little bit, but there, there's this metaphor that uh, feelings are like smoke detectors that most of the time they are probably inaccurate or not worth listening to, but for, for the times that they are uh, correct, you're thankful you have them. That's why you have smoke detectors. Uh-huh. Um, does, that res- does that metaphor resonate? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes anxiety gets you to do something you need to do. And, and same with all these feelings, not, not everything is a false positive, if that's what you mean. You know, a lot of our emotions are designed to be false, to generate false positives, because it's like better safe than sorry situations, right? We overestimate the speed of big approaching objects, because better safe than sorry, you're usually wrong. The, the, the subtle feeling that you need to get out of the way right then is usually wrong. You actually have more time, but better safe than sorry. There are these false positives. So yeah, I mean, emotions are designed to, some of them, to signal danger. Some of them are designed to over-signal, to err on the side of caution. To my mind, I mean, I'm basically utilitarian, but the source of moral value in the world is the, is the fact that there are sentient beings. There, there are beings for whom it is like something to be alive. And, and this gets back, by the way, to your, your, your very original question about consciousness, uh, whether that figures into this, my views on larger pr- purpose. I would point out that nobody has a clue as to what the deal is with consciousness. <laughs> Why it is like something to be an animal, certainly including human animal. It doesn't seem to follow from some kind of description of natural selection that it would be the case in a way, the most natural kind of scientific view of consciousness in a way would be to assume that it's epiphenomenal. In other words, it doesn't even influence our behavior, notwithstanding the, the intuition that we are influencing our behavior with our, with, with our mind. 
so in that scenario, consciousness is just like thrown in, you know, in the, if, if it is an epiphenomenon, it's just thrown in for free uh, and it w- with no, with no function in that scenario. And if that's the case, and if it's not the case, we still have no clue as to what is the case because it, none of us can successfully conceive of a relationship between the subjective world and the physical world that, you know, involves a different kind of causality other than epiphenomenalism, I'd say. Anyway, forget what I just, those last few sentences. What, what I'm going to say is... Consciousness is also the thing that gives life meaning. If it were not like something to be us, if this plan, if, if everything on this planet were just a zombie and none of them actually experienced pleasure or pain, you know, the, yes, they did retract their hand from a fire. They were programmed that way, but the fire had not caused them pain. Yes, they did eat food, but it didn't taste good. They ate it for the nourishment, but there was no subjective sensation of pleasure. When they looked at something, there was no apprehension of beauty. If there was no subjective experience, I would say life has no meaning. Even if it looked exactly like it does. If you and me and all the insects and mammals were robots with no interior life, I would say life has no meaning. Life on this planet, and yet it does. So, and, and what gives it meaning is the existence of subjective experience or consciousness. And one thing this process has done is increase the riches of consciousness, right? I mean, that's what evolution, biological evolution does. More and more complex animals seem to have richer forms of consciousness. So this, it is a machine. Biological evolution is, in this view, a machine for generating meaning just by virtue of creating richer consciousness. And if you buy the idea that consciousness has no function, that it's epiphenomenal, then, then it's the meaning is thrown in for free. The, the, in other words, the meaning... The, the moral meaning of it is the only function in a certain sense, okay? So I'm just saying if you were, if you bought the rudiments of my idea for a purpose, which again isn't meant to be a killer argument or proof of larger purpose, but, but meant to add evidence to the hypothesis that there is larger purpose. If you bought that and then started saying, well, what else is there that might convince me? I, I, I think this would be another thing. I already mentioned the moral direction of history. I would think the fact that biological evolution is a consciousness-making machine and therefore a meaning-making machine, you know, should not go unnoted. Do, do you think virtual reality and artificial intelligence also uh, count as a higher form of consciousness or a lower form of consciousness or a different form as we, you know, immerse ourselves more with there, not to open up a whole other can of Well, I don't, I'm agnostic. I mean, for all I know, my thermostat, for all I know, it's like something to be my thermostat, but you wouldn't. We would have no way of knowing whether we could eventually have a way of knowing. I don't know. But my, my point is the fact that something doesn't say I'm feeling consciousness doesn't mean it's not conscious. I, I assume it's like something to be my dog, but my dog has never said it's like something to be my dog. And I'd say the same with artificial intelligence. It, you know, if you ask what is it that makes consciousness could be complex information processing always it's always like something to be a complex information processing system that's not a crazy hypothesis if that's the case then it's probably you know like something to be microsoft office i can't imagine it's very fun <laughs> right and yeah it is interesting that you know some scientists have sort of written off the uh, the importance of, of philosophy and I, I think i've heard you lament that and maybe this is one of the the questions that the field of philosophy can can make some advancements on in the next. Yeah, although it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, 
mind body is a tough the mind body problem is one of the most imponderable things that I, I, I think it may be that it isn't just that we will never find out the answer so long as at least so long as we are just humans like we are, but it may be that we're just not capable of understanding the truth. I mean, you know, that it's a truth who's that in some sense escapes our ability to, to grasp it, the, the relationship between subjective experience to the physical world and why why there is subjective experience. I, I'm not optimistic in, in figuring it out before I die, we'll say that. But it could be either enhanced human intelligence or collective human intelligence, right? Like it's like no one person knows how to design a to build a Boeing 747, but the corporate brain of Boeing knows how, right? The the distributed information processing system across many humans understands. Who knows? Maybe someday multiple humans will be so integrated into a collective intellect that that will somehow allow them to, the the collective intelligence to comprehend things that that may even then exceed the grasp of the individuals uh, constituting the collective intelligence. I'd say we've gotten about weird enough here. Yes. I I will will let you go. One last question, um, and then then I'll let you go, is um, basically, and this is a hobby horse you've had for a couple decades too, is the explain is to excuse as sort of a Chinese solution to the fundamental attribution error. Why is that so problematic for people? The explain to excuse and another version of a different version, but related is why do we have more sympathy for someone like Martin Shkreli or, or, you know, small white collar criminal than we do a, you know, a, uh, almost like mass murderer or someone who's committed something way worse. Uh, and then, and why do we care about, I guess another version of it. Why do we care about equality in the first place, or inequality in the first place, assuming people have all met their, their basic needs. Is it because we're wired for non for, for zero sum, you know, and jealousy and uh, it is, there's a couple different questions, but I'm, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. A couple different in reverse order. I, I mean, I don't know about equality. I, I think it's true that, you know, most hunter gatherer societies have a pretty egalitarian ethos. There are status differentials and there's reason to believe that they did pay off in terms of reproductive success, but the ethos tends to be uh, one where hoarding things is resented and even punished. So it's not, I, I'm not saying we're designed to be egalitarian, but it's not, it's not surprising to me that if that's kind of a common state in hunter-gatherer societies that, that you've got people pushing for egalitarianism. And, and in any event, I would say from a utilitarian perspective is look, if having a large fraction of the population feeling unfairly deprived, feeling like they're victims of, say, globalization, a globalization that's benefiting people have a lot more than they have, you know, you got to deal with that. It's just on a, a pragmatic level. If that's because if it's a fact, given human nature, that huge inequalities of distribution lead people to revolt, well, you might want to avoid the huge inequalities. But the, uh, so moving backwards, like just quickly on the, who we feel, what criminals we sympathize with. I I think we tend to sympathize with criminals who we can imagine ourselves in the shoes of or or come closer to that. It's like, yeah, I can imagine being so down and out that I'd have to steal something in a way that didn't hurt anybody. I can imagine, I can't imagine like slaughtering nine people. I can't imagine this or that. I think that's one, certainly one of the maneuvers we use in calibrating our sympathy for criminals. Now, the first thing you said is really important. I really think one of the biggest problems we face 
is that when you start trying to explain why somebody did something bad, they think you mean to excuse the person, you know, like, and, and that's a deeply seated human intuition. And I suspect, I, I think you could articulate a pretty good hypothesis as to why that would be a human intuition, why that would have evolved as an intuition that the more we can explain why somebody did something in an intelligible way, the more forgiving we'll be. And by the way, that's not totally unrelated to what I just said, which is that the more we can imagine ourselves in the shoes of someone, right? The more the explanation for what, why they did something makes sense to us is intelligible to us. The more sympathy we have, these two things are related. And, and in a way that, that, the one may just be an, an example of a subset of this larger tendency to conflate explanation with exculpation. In any event, I think we have to get over this as a species and um, be willing to try hard to explain why people did bad things, the root causes. Was it because they had an underprivileged background? Was it because they resented America having sponsored a coup in some, you know, whatever, in whatever realm, foreign policy, criminal law. I, th- I think we, we have to do our best to understand why people do bad things and not be afraid of answering the question. And so we have to be careful to say that we're not saying that lets them off the hook. We're not saying that you don't punish criminals just because you can understand why they do things. But understanding it may help you prevent crime in the future or may help you calibrate the punishment in a way that makes it more effective or whatever. So, uh, you know, we're closing on, on something that's really a hobby horse of mine that I haven't had a chance to write about much, but I think is really an important thing. to. It gets in the way of all kinds of rational political discussion. Somebody, oh, you're excusing terrorism, you know, or whatever. Happens all the time. And, and Coulter accused me of, uh, I don't know, sympathizing with terrorists or something. <laughs> Do you know what your next book is? No, I don't. I've been putting a lot of time into this Mindful Resistance newsletter thing, which uh, people can subscribe to at mindfulresistance.net. Um, that, that's probably going to evolve and, and change its name, uh, but it has been that and some other things, including my podcast. Uh, let me plug all my stuff. I have a podcast called The Right Show, on a which appears on two ne- kind of, video networks I started, Meaning of Life TV and Blogging Heads TV. And that eats up a certain amount of my time. I've never, you know, I've only written five books and, and, and I've been around a while. So I've never rushed into books after finishing one. I, I published the, uh, the Buddhism book two years ago. I don't have a single thing I'm thinking. I, what I'm thinking of is short. I, w- I want to write short next time. <laughs> Bob, I want to be sensitive to your time. My guest today has been Robert Wright. Check out mindfulresistance.net, meaningoflife.tv. Uh, follow him at Robert Ryder and then purchase his books on Amazon to send a, a lot of money his way. Uh, Absolutely. Lots. <laughs> thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. That was a great conversation. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 